for we ask it this day in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a series of references in the lives of both Ezra and Nehemiah which mention the hand of God being upon them. Now, with respect to Nehemiah, it is only here in these two references that I've drawn to your attention already out of this chapter where this is mentioned. In the life of Ezra, it is a little bit more substantial. For example, if you turn back there just a book to Ezra chapter 7, and on three occasions in that chapter, Ezra chapter 7, you will find the same type of language. For example, at the end of verse 6, you will find the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord as God upon him. And then at the end of verse 9, it will mention again, according to the good hand of his God upon him. And then write down the last verse of chapter 7 of Ezra, and you will find the sentence there, and I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And then if you go into chapter 8, and verse 18, verse 22, and verse 31, you will find in each of those three verses, verse 18, 22, 31, you will find similar language. References to Ezra indicating that the hand of the Lord, or even the good hand of the Lord, was upon him. So both of these men, Ezra and Nehemiah, who are so much associated together, were able both to testify that in their respective lives, the hand of the Lord was upon them, and that it was upon them for good in the circumstances of their life. And that is something, surely, that every individual both needs and ought to desire. We need the saving hand of the Lord upon us. How else will anyone ever come to know Christ but by the saving hand of God? It is by his outstretched hand and by his mighty arm that he brings us up out of the miry clay and out of the fearful pit and saves our souls and sets us on the rock Christ Jesus. But we need his hand upon us day by day as well. You can call it his sanctifying hand, that he sanctifies all the circumstances of, of life to us, that what it is that we face from day to day, that we know that the Lord's hand is in this all, and that he will overrule it for our good. We need to be able to testify to that, and to be able to say, this is my experience as well, even as it was the experience of Ezra, and as it also was the experience of Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah are so closely connected because, well, they virtually did minister and serve the Lord at the same time. There is a little time difference between uh, Ezra's return from the land of captivity and Nehemiah. There's about 13 years between them. But even when you read on through the book of Nehemiah, you find that the two of them are there in Jerusalem ministering together. So they, they were together very much, even though there was initially a time difference in their return. There was an earlier return. The first return from captivity, remember, was under that man Zerubbabel. And you read about that in the opening chapters of Ezra. But then when you get there to chapter 7 of Ezra, you start Ezra's return himself, which was about 57 years or 58 years later. The first return under Zerubbabel was to go back to build the temple, and it all started so well, and then it petered out, and there was opposition, and... 
It lay in ruin for a while and never was, was rebuilt until the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. And they stirred up the people and then the work was completed. But then the Lord took Ezra back. And he went back not to build the temple because that had already been built. He went back to regulate the worship of the temple. And then when we come into Nehemiah and his calling to go back to the, the land of his birth and the city of Jerusalem, it was to rebuild the city. So each one of those three individuals had a different emphasis as they went back to the land of captivity. But it's those two later men, Ezra and Nehemiah, that are so joined together, and it is both of them that you read here of, that the Lord's hand was upon them. And for a little time this, this morning, I want us to, to think about that. How, how did that outwork itself in, in practical, everyday life? Because in all of our lives, it's, it's one thing to have the theory. How does it work out in practice? And Bible religion is practical religion. There certainly is the theory or the theology of it, if we want to call it that. There are those things that we most surely believe and we hold to because they're the doctrines of the word of God and therefore we hold fast to them. But Bible religion is practical religion. We have to live in the world. We have to face the circumstances of the world day by day and week by week. So how does the truth of God in this particular regard, this thought of the hand of God being upon an individual, how does that work itself out in your life and my life day by day? Are there, are there things that we can distinguish? Are there marks that we can say, well, here's how it was in, in Nehemiah's life? Because that's what we want to think about out of this chapter that we have read this morning. How was it in Nehemiah's life? How did this manifest itself that then he could testify that this was indeed the case? And as he looked back and, and surveyed just the recent past and the circumstances that had brought him to Jerusalem at this time, and he could say, the good hand of God was upon me, and he's willing to tell others about it as well. It's not something that's so indefinite in his own experience that he doesn't want to talk about it in case it's wrong, in case this is, this is not the case at all. Nehemiah is sure that God's hand has been upon him. He's able to trace that in the circumstances that have come to pass. So I, I want to draw that to your, your attention for a moment. I want you first of all to consider this, that the hand of God upon an individual gives, God, gives an individual a burden for God's cause. The hand of God upon an individual gives that individual a burden for God's cause. And here, I want you to go back to verse 12 of this chapter that we have read. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 12. And there it says, I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. So Nehemiah is indicating here, he hasn't divulged it to anyone yet, but there is something that God has put in his heart. There is a burden that is in his heart. That is what has brought him back to the city of Jerusalem from the land of captivity. Because God has put something in this man's heart. He has put a burden in his heart. And he has put that burden in his heart by putting his hand upon Nehemiah in a particular way. And so great will be this burden that Nehemiah will not be able to get away from it. Now you have to go back into chapter 1 
And we, we don't have time this morning to read chapter 1 as well, but that really starts to fill in the details here as to how Nehemiah first of all heard about what had happened or what was happening at Jerusalem and then how it begins to burn its way into his soul. It's through his, his brother Hanani. If you look there at verse 2 of chapter 1, Nehemiah 1 and verse 2, it speaks there about Hanani, one of my brethren, came. He and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So on a, on a practical level, this, this is how Nehemiah hears about the circumstances that have transpired in Jerusalem. All of that promise with the returns, both under Zerubbabel and under Ezra, have not got to the place where the city is being rebuilt. The temple might be rebuilt and, and Ezra might be regulating the worship that goes on in the temple, but the city is lying in destruction still. And this report is given to to Nehemiah. And it begins almost immediately to burn its way into his soul. Because in chapter 1 and verse 4 it says, It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is, is particularly affected by this. Distressed and troubled by it. To the extent that it tells us there that he is, he's weeping and mourning certain days. He's fasting and he's praying unto the Lord about this matter. Certain days. But it, 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 it won't go away. This burden won't go away. Because if you look there at chapter 1 and verse 1, you have a little bit of a, a time marker. Because it tells you there in the middle of that verse, it came to pass in the month Chisleu. In the 20th year that I was in Shush in the palace. So we've got a time marker as to when Hanani came from uh, Jerusalem and told Nehemiah that this is what is happening to the city and to the people. And then if you come down to chapter 2 and verse 1 where we started reading. And we read there that it came to pass in the month Nathan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. Now, without going into listing all the different months and the names of the various months uh, of the Jewish year, there's four months between these two time references. So it's, it's Chislu there in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 is when Nehemiah hears it for the first time. And then the events of chapter 2 take place four months later. So four months have gone by since he heard of what has been happening in Jerusalem. And this, this hasn't lessened. It hasn't gone away. This concern that he has, this burden that he has, is still there. It's still there in the same manner that it was the very first day he heard it. And you, you know as well as I do, we, we can hear accounts of things. And maybe the first time we hear something, it makes an impression upon us. Maybe even distresses us. But as time goes by, we get, we get used to that. We come to terms with it. We can start to live with things. Oh, they might have 
those events that we might hear of or some incident that has happened may have distressed us at the time we have heard it, but as time goes by, we grow to live with it. Not Nehemiah. Not Nehemiah. This burden is just pressing upon him more and more. So much so that the king notices there in chapter 2, verse 2, and says to him, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And it tells us Nehemiah was very sore afraid, and there was a good reason for that. But here, he he can't hide this. I, I would suggest that we could go as far as to say that Nehemiah couldn't hide it even though he was trying to hide it. And I'll explain why I think that in a moment. But here's the man that this burden is so working into his soul. Here's the Lord's hand being put upon him that he cannot get away from this matter. Even when he would want to hide it. And the reason why I say that is because of that sentence at the end of verse 2. That Nehemiah was sad. Because you were not allowed to be sad in the presence of a Persian king. They were superstitious. Very superstitious. They wanted their servants to be jovial and happy. And to give that impression. Even though circumstances in their lives may be otherwise. And with the wave of of a king he could sentence someone to death who was anything but happy and jovial in the king's presence. And that's why Nehemiah is sad, because Nehemiah knows what could happen here. Just in a moment, this king could say, take him out, put him to death. He's not allowed to be sad in my countenance. He's not allowed to be acting in this way in my presence. So even when Nehemiah would want to hide it, because his life is in danger, this man cannot conceal this. It's all over his, his countenance. The king knows this man is not as he has been in times past. There is something in this man's soul. Because he goes on to, to tell him this. He says, thou art not sick. You're, you're not physically sick. It's not some physical ailment that you have. This is sorrow of heart. And that's getting to the very crux of the matter. Something has worked its way into Nehemiah's heart. And that's what he's referencing later on here in verse 12, where he says that he had not yet told any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. God has put something into this man's heart. This is the outworking of God's hand upon him. I I challenge each one today, myself included, has God ever put something into your heart to do? Has God ever put something into your heart to do? Can you ever say that? I'm not just saying with regards to full-time service because to me it applies to every part of life. In your life generally, can you say that? I, I am living my life in such a way because God has put it into my heart so to live. And the things that I do and the choices that I make and the road I take is because he has put something into my heart. If we want to know God's hand upon us and if we want to be able truly to say, I can, I can testify to this experience, then here to me is something we need to be able to say. We need to be able to say, like Nehemiah, God has put something into my heart to do. 
And, and let's apply it to the work of God. Has God put something into your heart to do in God's work? Because that's what Nehemiah is here about. He's about Jerusalem. It's, it's what's going on in Jerusalem that's troubling him among the people of God. So again, I, I lay the challenge down. Has God put something into your heart to do for God's work, for God's cause in this day and age? There's plenty to do. And there'll always be something to do for someone who's willing to do it. It might be the most practical things. It might be the most practical things. Or it may not. It may be something more than that. But to be able to say God has put something into my heart. And I can't get away from it. This burden just burns its way into my soul. That's the type of man that Nehemiah was. The second thing I want you to consider here is that the hand of God upon an individual will prosper their way. Will prosper their way. If you look here again at this portion of of, uh, Scripture, and verse 18 particularly, because now Nehemiah is telling those around him about what is in his heart, And he says, then I told them of the good hand of my God, which was good upon me, and the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And you have the, if we go down to verse 20, you have the word prosper there. Because when they've heard from Nehemiah what he has to say, and the account, and we're going to look at this a wee bit closer uh, here now, what exactly did he tell them? But having told them how the Lord had manifested his good hand upon them. In verse 20 it says, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. We his servants will arise and build. So this is, this is the conviction. The God of heaven will prosper us. And if God puts his hand upon an individual and burdens them about something, God will prosper them. In order to bring that about. You you can think about that here as it relates to Nehemiah. We go back to that uh, verse 4. Because the king, when he realizes that Nehemiah is is sad and it's sorrow of heart. Nehemiah tells him in verse 3. He pours out his soul. To him there, why should, my why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? So he pours out his heart to the king. And then in verse 4, surprisingly, this, this is surprising. The king said unto him, for what dost thou make request? That's open-ended. There's no limits, no conditions, no qualifications this king says to Nehemiah, what do you want to do about it? What do you want to do about it? And Nehemiah knows the significance of this because it tells us there that he prayed to the God of heaven. It's so short a prayer is not even recorded. It might even have been just a, a sigh of the heart. A few words that went up silently to heaven and in that split second from when the king asks him, well, what do you want to do about it, Nehemiah? To Nehemiah starts telling the king, well, here's what I would like. And in that split second in between that, he he shoots up a prayer to heaven that God has heard. And what follows on here is an example, an illustration of the words of Scripture in Proverbs 21 and 1. The The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. 
and as rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he will. Nehemiah made three requests, and all three were granted. Verse 5 is the first request. He wants permission to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, maybe we lose the significance of that. Maybe we need to stop for a moment and, and think, well, what's the significance of rebuilding the walls? Well, you're going to turn the city into a secure city. You're going to put up the walls and put up the gates and the bars, as we know, following on here. And therefore, the city is going to become secure. But remember, Jerusalem had a history of rebellion. They did not like the yoke of the oppressor upon them. In fact, is not what the, the enemy charges them with here? When in verse 19, will ye rebel? What is this thing that ye do? The end of verse 19 of chapter 2. Will ye rebel against the king? That's how the enemy's going to uh, portray it. This is rebellion. This is an uprising against the Persian kings, if you start to build the walls of Jerusalem and put up the gates and close this city and make it secure. Well, did the king not know that when Nehemiah asked him for permission to go back and to rebuild the walls? He most certainly did. Jerusalem had a long history of rebellion. The second request is in verse 7, where Nehemiah is looking for a letter of safe passage so that he can get from where he is, at Shushan the palace, in the land of captivity, through all of the provinces of the Medo-Persian Empire, right to he comes into Judea, to Jerusalem. And then the third request is in verse 8. He's looking for a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may have a supply of timber and all that he needs to make the, the gates. The stones will be there at Jerusalem already, they have been pulled down and they're all lying there at the, at the city. So he can build up the, the, the stone walls. But what about the gates? He needs timber to remake the gates. And that's where you have the first reference there at the end of verse 8 to these three requests that Nehemiah made. And it says there at the, the last sentence, I've already mentioned it, drawn it to your attention. The king granted me. Was it, was it Nehemiah's persuasive powers? Was it because he was a favorite of the king? Is this the reason why that he, he got this permission from the king? Is that what Nehemiah is attributing to? No. Nehemiah says, the king granted me this because God's hand was on me. God's good hand was upon me. So here, here's the Lord prospering a man's way. Even when it seems impossible for this to be granted. When you think about the circumstances. Even when it seems impossible that it would be granted. God has prospered Nehemiah's way. And if God puts his hand upon somebody, God prospers that person. He opens doors and he closes doors. And he takes them the way that he wants them to go. When they are willing to go. And he will prosper their way. I don't know if you've ever read much about Thomas Bernardo, the man that started Bernardo's Homes. Bernardo Homes have long departed from the principles of their founder. But Thomas Bernardo's was a believer. He was actually from Dublin. He was a Church of Ireland man, a Jewish extraction as well in his ancestry. But he went over to St. Bartholomew's in London to train as a doctor. And he was living in Diggs. 
And as he walked back and forth from his accommodation to the hospital, he began to notice the waifs and the strays of London, the orphans and the homeless. And as time went by, the Lord started to put it into the heart of Thomas Barnardo. You need to do something about these children. And if you read biography of Bernardo, he will, it's recorded there that his attitude was, I'm just a poor trainee doctor. I don't have the means. I'm in a strange city. I've only come here to live. But the burden couldn't, the burden wouldn't go away. And it just started getting greater and greater and greater until he started doing something about it. Only on, oh, on a very small way, small scale. He tried to make it known to other Christians. Many wouldn't believe that there was a real problem. He, many doubted him. He got, cut a long story short, he got an opportunity to go and speak to a group of very influential, wealthy men who would be interested in uh, helping uh, causes where they thought that there was a need, but they were very skeptical that there was any need to have any thought about orphans and waifs and strays in London. And Thomas Barnardo was speaking at this meeting one night and one of the men spoke up and said, I don't believe you. And he really, and he, he, he went as far as calling his bluff and he says, if this is the case, then you take us down into the east end of London now, this very moment, and show us all these waifs and strays that you're talking about if there's such a problem. And Thomas Barnardo thought, this is just the opportunity I've been looking for. So into their carriages, they all got and down into the east end of London, Thomas Bernardo got a contact that he had made um, sometime previously. They went to a place where normally on other occasions when Bernardo was there, he would get somewhere around six to ten children sleeping rough at night. So they went, he thought this would be the place to go. So he went down into the East End, all these wealthy men out of their carriages and Bernardo was hunting around trying to find these children and he can't find a single one. Not a child could be found and he he cries to heaven Lord this is the opportunity that I've been looking for and I I can't find the child it was a cold night a frosty night and they looked a bit further and they discovered that there was a large uh, tarpaulin cover that had been spread out on the ground and the children were actually in under the tarpaulin cover trying to get a little bore heat one of the men, wealthy men, said, I'll give, I can't remember what the coinage was, but he said, I'll give everybody a certain coin if you come out and stand here before us. And Thomas Bernardo testifies that in a place where at the very most, on any other occasion he was ever there, he found ten children. That night, 75 children crawled out from under a black tarpaulin cover and stood out in front of these wealthy men. And those men said, we believe you. We doubted you. Now we know you're right and we'll support you. And that was the start of Thomas Bernardo's work in a greater way among the orphans of London. God prospers a man's way. And if God is in something, the Lord prospers it. The Lord sees to it. I better hasten on. And one final thing I want you to consider here in this um, 
chapter is that the hand of God imparts a strength to labor for God. If you look there at verse 18 again, Nehemiah 2.18, it tells you there that when they hear about the hand of God upon Nehemiah and the king's words as well, that he's given Nehemiah permission to do all of this, it says they're halfway through verse 18, and they said, this is not the words of Nehemiah now. These are the words of the people who have been listening to him, hearing him give this account. And it's they who say, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. This has come about as the hand of God upon Nehemiah. And there is this stirring up, this imparting of strength. We don't have time just this morning to develop that. I'm conscious there's a mission on this afternoon. So you can, you can start and develop that in your own mind. First of all, the Lord stirs up others because he's, he's put a burden in one man's heart and he's prospered one man. And then it's infectious. It rubs off on others and others get stirred up about it. Ah, but not only been stirred up because, as we know, we can all be stirred up about something, but we need strength to carry it through. Ah, but that comes as well then, it says. They said, so they strengthened their hands for this good work. There was strength imparted. Even in the face of the enemy, because verse 19 tells us there that old Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, they soon arrived on the scene and started to complain that there was something being done and do anything for God, there's always opposition. But it didn't matter. If God is in it, if God is prospering it, God's work goes on. And it's the same in our lives, Christian. It matters not that the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. If the Lord puts something in your heart, and if you go at his bidding and do his will, then you can look to the Lord to prosper your way. It mightn't be exactly how you thought it would work out, or how I think it might work out. And we have to learn that along the way too. But it doesn't take away from the fact God prospers a person's way. And Nehemiah was such a man. May we be such people. Just practical everyday religion. Living our lives knowing God's hand is upon us. In all that we do.